the Christian Origins podcast with Tom and John. Tom, can I just say that hopefully as this podcast has gone from strength to strength each week as we're we're looking at these different models of the oral traditioning process, it seems that your facial hair seems to be going from strength to strength as well. <laughs> some some would say strength to strength, some would say utter weakness all all around. But so, um some would say utter weakness. Um but I, I personally wouldn't and for any for any of our listeners who who don't have the privilege of of seeing your facial hair at the moment, um, we do have uh, an Instagram uh, account which is called the Christian Origins Podcast. So if you would like to see the wonderful facial hair of my co-host uh, Tom Hester, please do visit that account and and give us a follow. What an incentive to follow that account! There you go. Um, so um, as I just, as I was just saying, um, we're continuing a series exploring. These different models of the traditioning process, uh, this process where Jesus' uh, sayings and his deeds were initially sort of transmitted orally. So last week we looked at a model called form criticism, which saw the process of oral tradition as an informal and uncontrolled process. So this was the tradition of Jesus' sayings and deeds um, that grew up in the preaching and life of the church and additions were made freely to the, to the tradition over time. So this week we are going to be exploring a model which is very different from form criticism and was actually in fact formulated in opposition to form criticism. Uh, and it's often called the rabbinic model and it's associated with a group of scholars in Scandinavia. So John, could you just perhaps unpack this model for us? Yeah, sure. So as you say, this view is associated with a group of scholars in Scandinavia in the second half of the 20th century, uh, particularly uh, Harold Reisenfeld, who was a professor at Uppsala University in Sweden, and his student Berger Gerhardsen, who developed his work. And if you recall from last week, the form critics believed that the sits im Leben, the, the setting in life or the social setting, in which much of the Jesus tradition was transmitted and created, was the preaching and the proclamation of the church. But Reisenfeld looked at this, and he looked at the New Testament epistles, and saw that there, the Jesus tradition actually gets very little attention. So he said, we actually need to look for a new social setting. And he argued that the proper setting for the traditioning process was the student-teacher relationship, which Jesus had with his disciples, and which they would have had with their own uh, disciples. So he likened this process to the passing down of the oral Torah by the rabbis. So just as students of the rabbis, these Jewish teachers would memorize the rabbi's teaching and preserve it as a sort of a holy word. So also the Jesus tradition can be traced back to the disciples memorizing and passing on their master's teaching. Yeah, and just to clarify, for those who may be unfamiliar with this oral Torah, uh, you just mentioned John, you are referring there to a body of sacred tradition, uh, which students of the rabbis would commit to memory, such as the laws, the halakha, and the legal rulings, um, which early rabbis had actually given. Exactly. So the traditions of the rabbis, the Jewish teachers, were later codified in a textual form, which is called the Mishnah. Uh, in the early 3rd century. But many of the traditions and teachings of the rabbis it records, which we have preserved for us, are sometimes uh, centuries earlier. And so 
The Scandinavian school takes this and uses it as an analogy for the transmission of the Jesus tradition as well. And uh, just to return to our labels that we've been using in the last few weeks, it's formal in the sense that there is a student-teacher relationship which governs the, the tradition. And it's controlled because there are certain people in this model responsible for memorising the tradition and handing it on. Namely, well, initially the disciples of Jesus and then their, their own disciples. Okay, so what are some of the evidences that Reisenfeld and Gehertzen uh, point to to support this idea that the rabbinic model was used for the Jesus tradition? So one key clue for these scholars is the evidence from Paul's epistles. So there are a few places where Paul seems to use the technical terms for the receiving and passing on of rabbinic tradition. Um, and the argument here is that this terminology would probably not be used for listening to a sermon or hearing gossip. These were terms uh, which were used when someone was receiving a tradition that they were going to make a conscious effort to memorise. And one of the clearest places I can think of, actually, um, where this occurs is 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul passes down uh, what looks like a creed or a formula of events surrounding Jesus' death and resurrection. Yeah, that's definitely the sort of the, the classic, the go-to passage. Um, 1 Corinthians 15, 3, um, Paul says, For I handed on to you, as of first importance, what I in turn had received. So the la this language of handing on something that he uh, has received from others. And then he says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. And I, I think almost everyone thinks this this is material that Paul has received. And many think that he might have got this from the apostles. Um, but th there are also places, however, where, you know, where some of these passages might refer to places where Paul hasn't got his tradition from others. And I, I think a classic passage in this respect is Galatians uh, chapter 1, 11 to 12, where Paul says, For I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel that was proclaimed by me is not of human origin. For I did not receive it from a human source, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Yeah, that is an objection um, and quite a helpful reminder that when Paul says he received something, lambano or paralambano, it doesn't mean always that he is using the technical language of a traditioning or a rabbinic traditioning process. Um, I would suggest, however, that in that passage, what Paul is referring to is not the whole of the gospel, but particularly the key implication of the gospel message that he received personally uh, from the Lord, which is that the gospel is for Jews and Gentiles, and the gospel does not require Gentiles to become Jews. Um, so I just think just because in that passage Paul is not referring to uh, a tradition that's been handed on by other people doesn't mean that um, other passages aren't clearer. So, for example, 1 Corinthians 15 uh, is a good instance of where Paul seems to have learnt things about the historical Jesus. Um, or 1 Corinthians 11 as well, where he says, you know, I received this from the Lord and goes on to, to recite a tradition about uh, the Lord's Supper which he presumably has received from other people um, about this event in Jesus' ministry. Um, but I think all the while we have to consider that, you know, Paul um, understood himself, or at least in his past, to be a Pharisee of Pharisees. And so it is a possibility that Paul is actually importing his own 
um, sort of model of a Pharisaic education onto these encounters with the Jesus tradition. Uh, and here I quote uh, from Eric Eves' book, Behind the Gospels, which I mentioned before, where he says, the fact that the Pharisaically educated and presumably literate Paul uses the technical language of handing on and receiving tradition may reflect the assumptions of his background rather than the teaching methods of Jesus and his first followers. So there are definitely questions about how much we can infer from the Pauline evidence. So we've we've had a look at Paul. I think it's probably good now if we turn to the Gospels um, for another aspect of the evidence. Yeah, so definitely another aspect of this evidence is the Gospels, uh, along with uh, the Book of Acts as well. And I think there are two really significant things here. Um, one is that the description which gets used of Jesus almost more than any other in the Gospels, I think, especially in the Gospel of Mark, is the word didaskalos, the Greek word for teacher, uh, the trans- translation of the Aramaic rabbi. Um, and so the image of Jesus they're presenting then, as well as a prophet and a miracle worker, is very much one of Jesus as a Jewish teacher, gathering and teaching disciples and sometimes even sending them out, presumably with the teaching that he has just uh, taught them. And uh, if we are going to assume anything like the sort of standard pedagogical methods, the educational methods of the ancient world, uh, applying in this context, we would assume Jesus was um, getting his disciples to recite back to him the things that he had taught them to make sure that they had actually learned correctly. And then we also have the evidence of Acts, where the disciples of Jesus commit themselves specially to teaching, um, as opposed to uh, some of the more pastoral roles. So at this early stage, according to the author, we don't have the image of random individuals taking control over the Jesus tradition, but naturally, perhaps, the disciples themselves. And according to the Scandinavian school, this teaching would have been something analogous to the passing on of teaching that they had themselves memorized in the ministry of Jesus. So I was I was just wondering, John, what, what do you actually make of this rabbinic model of transmission? You know, what, what are some more of the objections? Um, and perhaps, you know, do, do you actually find them persuasive? Because I remember we looked at Ehrman last week and, um, you know, he, he says that the uh, rabbinic model is actually anachronistic. I was just wondering if you found that persuasive. Yes. Yeah, so we, we looked at that claim of Ehrman that this is anachronistic. Um, I I said then that it's not a terribly good one because um, if it is actually the case that the Gospels seem to have recorded um, uh, these traditions very meticulously or that they have been preserved meticulously in the traditioning process, then we may well suppose something like the rabbinic model as an analogy um, for the traditioning process. And I think that's perfectly valid. So we have to actually look at the data of the Gospels. And well, if you disagree that the Gospels do look do preserve traditions which are meticulous, uh, meticulously preserved, then that's completely fine. But that's a somewhat different objection. Um, and then also, you know, Gerritsen was aware that the rabbinic evidence was later. I mean, he was writing at a time when there was perhaps slightly more confidence in many of the traditions as they'd been preserved even sort of pre-70, pre the destruction of uh, the temple in Jerusalem. So um, he was writing at a slightly different time in scholarship, he has claimed. Um, but uh, he wasn't, I mean, even even that being the case, he wasn't saying that the process was exactly the same. He was just going uh, to one of the nearest models of oral tradition, which were available to him in the ancient world. And I think in that respect, um, the analogy of a rabbinic model can actually be quite helpful. So I, I guess the question is now, you know, one one that will remain at the heart of this podcast, uh, I think for episodes to come, you know, does it actually make sense of the data? 
Well, Tom, quite a few scholars have thought that it doesn't. <laughs> and they have said that when we look at parallel passages in the synoptics, uh, it doesn't seem like the material has um, a totally fixed form which has been memorized and passed down. Um, so even in sort of uh, passages where we might expect a very fixed form like the Beatitudes or the Lord's Prayer, which are preserved um, slightly differently in Matthew and Luke, there are some significant variations in them. Um, but there are a few caveats we've got to uh, quickly add here. One is that there is generally more variation in the narrative material in the Gospels than in the sayings material. And that might perhaps support Gerritsen's idea that the teaching material is something which is particularly likely to be memorised and passed down. Um, another is that the rabbinic material, when it can be compared in different versions, is not itself entirely fixed. So Gerritsen could say that such variations are in keeping with the rabbinic evidence. But then I suppose that, you know, we're no longer necessarily talking about a formal controlled or a rigorously controlled model in a strict sense. I, I think that's an interesting distinction you make between the way that Jesus's sayings and deeds would be passed down, because that's a distinction we haven't drawn on so far. Um, but it seems quite plausible that the way Jesus's sayings were remembered and handed on could be quite different to an episode in Jesus's life. Because, you know, I guess events just happen and the events themselves can be memorable or perhaps not so memorable. But with teaching, any good teacher will have some responsibility for whether or not the material is actually remembered. Yes, and I think that's where I actually think there is something in this rabbinic analogy of transmission, not necessarily on the level of a very strict process of one disciple passing on to another trusted person the tradition, but the fact that Jesus' teaching was actually memorable or easily memorizable. And we looked last week at the forms, which are these subgenres in the Gospels, which may have been shaped over time into their kind of generic moulds, um, perhaps serving as some kind of aid to memory. But there are other signs um, that material in the Gospels has been shaped for the purpose of being memorised. And this shaping could have taken place in Jesus' ministry, in his own teaching style, or in the tradition as it handed on Jesus' teachings. So to give just one example, which uh, Robert McIver notes in his book on the subject, much of Jesus' teaching is aphoristic. It's in these short kinds of pithy sayings. And uh, according to uh, Rainer Reisner, who was also part of this Scandinavian school, uh, there are 247 units which make up Jesus' uh, teaching material in the Synoptic Gospels, and 42% of them are just one verse long, and another 23% are two verses long. So a lot of it is very, very short and aphoristic. And the thing about aphorisms is that they can fade from memory very quickly. So when they are remembered, they are very likely to be remembered um, in the form in which they are actually taught, and they're likely to be remembered because they have been rehearsed and because their imagery is very um, vivid. They have usually a, a kind of a simple internal structure and they use things like figures of speech. Uh, and so they have the kinds of qualities which would make them uh, memorable. But the point that McIver is making by pointing to Jesus' um, aphorisms is that they are the kind of sayings that are either very quickly forgotten or they are memorized in the form uh, in which they actually took. So, for example, I think last week I gave you this like little limerick about C.H. Dodd. <laughs> um, there once was a man called Dodd whose name was exceedingly odd. Uh, he spelt, if you please, his name with three Ds when one was sufficient for God. 
and that has you know apart from being sort of funny it has a structure it has the the limerical a b b a structure and and but the thing with that is i either remember i either don't remember it or i remember it in the form in which it's actually been originally taught and so there's something similar he's making a similar argument with these very pithy aphorisms of jesus which usually have their own kinds of structure so it, it sounds like that you're saying that the memorability of the tradition perhaps lied not in strict student-teacher relationships, but in the material itself, or I suppose how the material was shaped during the tradition. But, you know, what what do you think generally about making this comparison between the gospel tradition and the rabbinic period of transmission? Um, you know, is it a good comparison generally? Well, we mentioned a book last week, E.P. Sanders' The Tendencies of the Synoptic Tradition. And he argued against the form critics because they generally thought that the tradition would expand or be embellished over time. But this law or supposed law of all tradition, which they posited, doesn't actually make sense of the ways the tradition changes in the Gospels. And he also made a number of criticisms of this comparison to rabbinic literature as well. So he was sort of taking fire at both the the informal uncontrolled view and also the formal controlled view. And Sanders notes a number of things, um, a number of dissimilarities. So firstly, he points out that um, there's this dissimilarity between the early Christians who believe that Jesus was alive and in communication with the early church, which might have uh, encouraged a kind of creativity um, in their traditioning process, which might have been absent from the rabbinic uh, process. Secondly, the time frame of the Gospels was just a matter of decades or was living memory, which seems quite different to many of the rabbinic traditions, which were transmitted over hundreds of years. Thirdly, he points to a difference between the Gospels as Greek translations of the tradition, which may well have begun in Aramaic and the rabbinic literature. So there are variations which might be introduced with that attempt to render Aramaic into Greek. Sanders also notes that the rabbinic material itself is quite different to the Gospels. So what the rabbis were memorizing, or the rabbis and their pupils were memorizing, was a combination of written texts and commentaries on those texts, which seems quite different to the Jesus tradition. So there are all kinds of reasons why we can't just go to the rabbinic material and think that we have here a very clear parallel to the Jesus tradition. Okay, but but even if we don't find an exact parallel in rabbinic transmission, um, you know, what what about the idea that there was uh, memorization of the Jesus tradition? Yeah, I th- I think that's a good distinction because I think it is generally recognised that memorization was not reserved um, to a rabbinic education, but was just something that would have been generally part of a Greek education or just education in uh, the ancient world. And you can instinctively tell why that might have been the case, because in the ancient world, there was no Wikipedia. There wasn't widespread um, access to um, textbooks and educational resources. There weren't uh, easy ways to look things up. And I think particularly the idea that sacred tradition or words of Jesus were particularly likely to be committed to memory seems quite uh, plausible to me. But there still remains a question, doesn't there, about whether the disciples themselves would have taken Jesus as their teacher in in somewhat of a formal sense. Yes, that that is an important question. And I think there are a couple of things that kind of raise doubt about whether Jesus' disciples would have been formally taught. Um, One is that there is no uh, there is no passage in the Gospels which shows Jesus teaching his disciples in a strictly formal sense. 
Um, and certainly there have been questions about whether the historical Jesus himself was um, literate in exactly the sense that uh, some of the um, some of the evangelists depict him. Um, but another issue, and this has been raised by Martin Hengel, um, I think, in questioning the work of the Scandinavian school, is that there is a deeply urgent aspect to Jesus' ministry. These uh, disciples were learning from their master, but there was also a sense in which they were going out and proclaiming an imminent end to the present order of the world and the present order of things, um, if not the world itself. And there are lots of questions about um, this uh, this eschatological element, you know, that the long term that theologians love to throw into sentences, just referring to um, a theology about the end of the end of the world. And there's quite a big school of thought, I would say, in Jesus' studies, which suggests that Jesus did think uh, in an important sense that the, the present order of things was coming to an end, if not the world itself. Um, so in this kind of urgent mode that the disciples might have been in, there wasn't kind of time to be memorizing all of these traditions. And actually, in some sense, I'm just thinking now um, on my feet, you know, um, Jesus, although he seems to find a conversation partner often in the in the Pharisees, and, and so a lot of people have thought that actually the group that Jesus was closest to was the Pharisees. You know, some might even describe Jesus as a Pharisee himself. Um, he does also seem to be very critical of the Pharisees and their handing down of traditions and this kind of thing. So... Um, it's not exactly clear whether Jesus was a teacher or a rabbi in a very formal sense and that he was teaching his disciples. But did he teach them things? Um, he did teach them things and would memorization have played some kind of role? Um, I think in addition to the, the kind of general ways in which Jesus' teaching was, um, was memorable, it, memorization, a conscious memorization probably would have paid, um, uh, played some kind of role in, in the traditioning process. Brilliant. So I, I think we'll probably leave it there for this week. Um, we've covered a lot of material. And again, it's been it's been really interesting um, to have another take on the tradition process. Um, John, do you just want to let uh, our listeners know what we're going to be looking at next week? Yes, well, um, next week we're going to be looking at uh, the work of a really interesting sort of missionary scholar, I believe, uh, Kenneth Bailey, who, who went to the Middle East and tried to understand how um, these communities were passing on all traditions. Um, and I think this is going to be really interesting because he was reacting against the the form critical model of this sort of free process of transmission. But he was also reacting against uh, the model we've looked at today, this very formally controlled view. And um, he's one of those scholars who uh, hasn't just sort of thought about this issue from from his uh, ivory tower, but he's actually gone out to the Middle East and has tried to understand how um, Jesus tradition might have um, being transmitted in a kind of Mediterranean setting. So I think that's going to be uh, really interesting to look at. And also, I should say his work um, has been quite well received, I would say, um, particularly by James Dunn, who's taking it up in his um, in his work on historical Jesus. So we're going to be looking at uh, James Dunn's work as well, which should be really interesting. Mm. And I think Kenneth Bailey actually has that first-hand experience. Well, not entirely first-hand experience, but because he, he wasn't actually there. But but that um, you know that historical awareness because he's actually gone to the Middle East. He's done his research with uh, people in that culture who were practicing the traditioning process and the transmission of that traditioning process. Um, and I, th I think that could possibly open up the argument to a lot of readers. And I think his research is certainly more defined and distinctive uh, compared to others in the field. 
for that reason. But yeah, so if you're uh, interested in listening to that episode, please do tune in next week. Thanks for listening. Thank you.